0: Father, just even feeling a little sick this morning with a cold that has been going around. It's gone around our house and has gone around through the community. God, I pray for your your strength. Just right now, to open your Word, may I preach it with passion, with clarity, and with truth. Father, that your Word would be lifted high. That I would, in some regards, in many ways, stand behind your Word. Um, and see you and your glory in front of all of us to behold. Thank you for the wonderful truths that you have in your word. And, and especially even today as we think about um, kind of just the, the glories of imputed righteousness to us. That we sinners that we are, are, are made righteous through faith. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in that in, in every way. So stir our hearts to hear the gospel afresh this morning. That we might be eager to preach the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. There we go. We're. Um, last week I um, began my message by telling you all that I was a physics major in college, and uh, we put up uh, some of the famous formulas uh, on the screen overhead, and kind of sought to challenge your physics knowledge and. Um, not many of you did very well. That's okay. Uh, it's not like physics is a is a real easy subject or something you know about and talk about a lot. But but Dallas did pretty good. Though I did stump him. That was that was really good. Um, and, and I tied the the basic formulas, just the the core uh, laws of the universe, to what we looked at last week in Romans three twenty seven, to the law of faith. That is right in the most simplest basic terms that our salvation comes to us by faith alone. And I argue that this law of faith is as fundamental to our salvation as is the law of gravity in the universe. And you may as well float upwards than to be saved by anything else other than through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things when I was in college, just just always on my mind was was this fact. I was I was keenly aware of this, is that we were trying in our physics classes to to study what reality was. We weren't creating reality in of ourselves, but we're searching for ways in which the the universe actually worked. And so, right, in other words, right, the, the universe didn't change when we came up with a formula to describe the universe. Rather, the, the world behaves in a certain way, and, and these formulas are, are merely a, a way of uh, understanding the way the world works. And so discovering a formula or discovering a, a property of physics was merely an expression of how things fundamentally work, right? And so think about Isaac Newton, when that proverbial apple fell on his head in the 1600s, and he had that eureka moment and he really understood that how gravity worked and how motion worked kind of uh, quickly. And he had a breakthrough in understanding how the, the universe works. It's not that Newton developed these laws. is that the laws were already there. And uh, Newton merely gave understanding to these laws as he expressed them in his laws of motion. The laws of motion were at work in our creation when Abraham walked the earth. When David walked the earth, when Jesus walked the earth, it's just simply we as a human race didn't quite understand how it, how it worked, but with Newton, our understanding of those laws came into full focus. And when it comes to the law of faith, one of the things we're going to find out even this week is that the law of faith has been at work in our world since the days of Adam. That we would always approach God by faith. And this law of faith was true during the days of Abraham. It was true during the days of David. And it's true in our days as well. In other words, right, the law of faith that we come to God on faith by grace alone, through faith alone, has always been there. But with the advent of the New Testament, with the advent of Christ and His, his revelation, his exposures, he was put forth publicly as a propitiation of his blood, we've come to understand. Um, clearly, more more clearly, how it is that law of faith works out, and the fact that that this law of faith has been working throughout the whole biblical story of redemption is what Paul labors to show in Romans chapter four, which is where our text is this morning. So, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans four. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew and in front of you. We're talking page nine hundred and forty one. Is a is where we are. You can see Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I want to just read this text. And I want you to just to listen for Old Testament, because Old Testament is going to come out of here quite quite strongly. Paul writes this What shall we say? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justice David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin now, one of the first things I hope you noticed in my, my reading there of that text is the mention of two Old Testament saints, Abraham and David. Abraham is mentioned three times in verse one, in verse two, and in verse three. David is mentioned in verse six and, and paul 's argument here is that that both of these men were saved through the law of faith, and there 's nothing new. About this way of salvation, they were saved by by faith alone. Now, the terminology in these verses are a little bit different. Paul doesn't use the phrase "law of faith" as he did in chapter three and verse twenty-seven. Rather, he uses the term "counted righteous." Counted righteous. Your your translation, if you have the NASB or the NIV, might be say "credited righteousness," or if you have the uh, the New King James, it might be translated "accounted righteous." That's what we're we're talking about. We're talking about being credited with righteousness. And and though the phraseology between that, credited with righteousness, and law of faith is different, it's really fundamentally getting at the the same thing. That God grants us righteousness through faith alone. And that's what the law of faith is getting at. In fact, this phrase, counted righteous, is three times here in our text. Look at verse 3. It says this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, or credited to him, or accounted to him as righteousness. It comes in verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is, or credited, or accounted righteousness. Or or verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the one whom God counts righteousness, Counts righteousness apart from works or that is credited or accounted righteousness. And, and, and with this threefold repetition of this phrase, uh, my message appropriately this morning is entitled, Counted Righteous. And these three repetitions, each one is going to form a, a different point to my message this morning because that's how, how, it, how it works. Because the first one talks about Abraham and, and the second one talks just about an illustration in general. And the third one talks about David. David. Now, before we actually get into my, my message or into the, uh, the outline, I do want us to think about what it means to be counted righteous. Now, I wasn't an accounting major in college. I was what? I was a physics major. Good. Uh, but I, I know only a little bit of, about counting accounting, but I know enough. I know enough that you put the credits on the left and the debits on the right. Uh, I know that credits are the things that are, are good for your bank account, right? <laughs> they are the things that, that increase your account. And debits are the things that, that reduce your account. So credits are things like income or maybe a gift or maybe some equity. Debits are the opposite. They are like payments or, or debts or liability. And when it comes to our salvation, by faith, God credits us or, or benefits our account with righteousness. In other words, God gives us a righteousness that we neither earned nor deserved. It's by His grace through the merits of Jesus Christ who earned it for us. That's what we mean by counted righteous. And so we can see this in our first point. My first point is simply this. That Abraham, verses 1 through 3. Abraham. Because that's what verses 1 through 3 talk about. And by the way, in Romans 4, we're going to see Abraham talked about a lot. Um, his name comes up in Romans 4, I, I think it's um, seven times, um, but the pronoun referencing him comes up 18 times. And and once you get out of Romans chapter 4, his, his name comes up in uh, Romans 9 and Romans 10 just to, by way of just slight reference. So Romans 4 is like owned and dominated by Abraham. As, as Paul continues to bang home this, pay, this point, that justification by faith is nothing new, in fact, Abraham, the father of faith, is where it is most clearly demonstrated. And so just, just look and see what Abraham experienced, counted righteous. What shall we say then? Verse 1, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul begins verses 1 and 2 by by pointing out that Abraham's favor with the Lord was not based on his works. All you need to do is really reflect on the life of of Abraham, and you see that by God's grace, he was called from the land of us. He came from an an idol-worshiping family, not from a a God-fearing family at all, and when it came to his life, he wasn't particularly righteous. Um, two separate occasions. We see him lying. Uh, We see him more interested in himself than he is the purity of his wife. Ready to give up his wife than his life. In chapter 16, he pursues the desires of his flesh. And and when it comes to his relationship with the Lord, he was never made righteous because of his works. Rather, as verse 3 points out, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And see, when your faith is counted to you as righteousness, you have nothing to boast about. Because, see, the law of faith excludes all boasting, like chapter 3, verse 27, we looked at last week. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. When you're, when you're reconciled to God simply by faith alone, all boasting goes out the door. In the same way, in chapter 4 and verse 2, Abraham, it says, he's, he's got nothing to boast about. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But he wasn't justified by works. He has nothing to boast about. And the reality is in verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness now that 's a quote from Genesis fifteen and verse six, and it would do well for us just simply to to go back there, turn back there in your Bibles to Genesis chapter fifteen uh, we 're talking page ten in your Bible right there at the the very beginning. Um, and I just want to read the story here about where that quote comes just by reading it and commenting just lightly on it so we can catch the thrust of how it was that Abraham was counted righteous now. Genesis 15.1 says, after these things, that is, after Abraham's rescue of his nephew, Lot, that is, after Melchizedek's blessing of him, says, the word of the Lord came to Abram, or Abraham, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, and I'll just put in parentheses here, unbelieving, O oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be an heir. See, God had promised to Abraham back in chapter 12 that his descendants would be a great nation, and Abraham at this point hadn't seen it come to pass. In fact, Sarah was barren. Sarah was old. Sarah had no hope for children when it came to an inheritance he had no child. His heir would be a household servant, this Eleazar of Damascus. Damascus is in Syria, and Israel, the Jews, felt about like Damascus like many people today do. It's, uh, it's not really nice, but that's, that's who he was. Probably this uh, immigrant from Syria had come down and served him, and so this is who the inheritance is going to be. He's the most trusted household servant. And so when God said to Abraham in verse 1, fear not, Abraham was not amused. He's not believing the promises of God, I believe. But God reiterates His promise in verse 4. Look, look there. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very son shall be your heir. And He brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them. And then He said, So shall your offspring be. Just Reiterating the promise that he would be a great nation. And I would just say that's a wild promise. Wild promise to an old man whose wife was past childbearing years, who was childless. And God promises not only a large family, but a a large progeny that would multiply and multiply and multiply. And extend for years and generations and centuries to come. And what's wilder yet is that Abraham believed. Look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness and and, and and there it is, right? Abraham taking God his word, saying, "God, if you said that, I believe it." And so any doubt that he had or any wavering that he had was coming in, in complete genuine faith right here and right now in verse six and and you think about from God's perspective, right Abraham's perspective is that he believed the Lord. From God's perspective, God credited his faith with righteousness, right? That is, that God looked down and saw Abraham, saw his faith, and then took righteousness and credited it to his account. So he gained righteousness through believing and trusting in God. And so when God looked at Abraham, he looked at him as a, a righteous man. And that, dear friends, is the gospel, Is it through faith God looks at us as righteous, right? We believe in Jesus Christ, that he died as a propitiation for our sins, and God accounts our life with righteousness. In other words, right, he sees us as righteous people, not because we are righteous, but because God considers us by faith to be righteous. Now, it's not that our faith needs to be perfect. I mean, Abraham's a great example of that. His faith wasn't perfect. Um, his faith wasn't perfect at the beginning of chapter 15. And, and his faith would continue to waver in chapter 16 when he goes into Hagar to conceive a son, essentially committing adultery. So, you see, our, our faith before God doesn't need to be perfect. But here's what it needs to be. It needs to be genuine. It, it needs to be real and Abraham demonstrates the reality of his faith come chapter 22, which Darren read for us in a scripture reading from um, from Hebrews 11. That God, that Abraham trusted God even when God said, kill your son. And he just said, well, here's my son. Here's my only heir. He's the son whom I love, who I delight in. And if God says that, I believe him and I don't understand, but I will sacrifice my son. And, and of course, then God Stopped him, but we we will look at that in a couple of weeks, two weeks from now, when we get to the end of chapter four, which is talking about that very event. But but enough to say this, right? Is your faith genuine? Do you have a genuine faith? I'm not asking if your faith is strong or perfect. I'm asking you whether it's genuine. Do you really believe that Jesus died for your sins? Are you really trusting that God is going to account your faith as righteousness? Or are you trying to do something else? Because genuine faith says, right? It's a hymn writer. I think it was Isaac Watts. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Faith says I'm not trusting in my own merits. I'm only trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ that I grab by faith. That's what God did with Abraham and that's what God does today. To all who believe in Jesus. Well let's move on. right? So you can turn back to, to Romans 4. And uh, we've seen in verses 1-3. through 3, We've seen Abraham. And, and now we're going to see. An illustration. This is verses 4 and 5. Because at this point. He just kind of goes off into principle. Into, into theory. Into in, in illustrating. And so he illustrates it from the workforce. A, a relationship that an employee has with an employer. He says this. Now. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, we know full well what this is about. Um, Even kids know what this is about, that you apply for a job, you get a job, you show up to work, you do your work, and your employee employer then gives you your wages all right now when your employer pays you he doesn't give you your check wrapped up in a nice bow and a nice gift card oh here you go thank you very much it's a it's a gift to you no because your paycheck is not a gift it's not a gift in any way because you earned it you deserved it It is yours. And your employer is simply making good on the deal that you made with him beforehand. Right? You agreed to work. He agreed to pay. It's the point of verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? In other words, when you're paid... You don't bow in thankfulness to your employer and say, "Oh, you are so gracious and kind. Thank you for this paycheck. I am, I, I am so indebted to you. You're like just the most wonderful boss in the world. Thank you that you even would give me this paycheck. Thank you." You don't do that sometimes, okay? <laughs> Maybe when things are hard and it's tight and you know, but that that's the idea. He, he, you deserve the money. This is the deal, a bonus maybe, yeah, but that's on top. You didn't deserve your bonus, right? Your bonus is different, but we're talking about the wages of what is due. Now, with that in mind, then Paul contrasts that, and he shows how the law of faith works. He says in verse 5, the exact opposite of the way that salvation comes. He says, now, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so here's one who doesn't work. He doesn't show up to the job, doesn't spend any time at work. He simply trusts his employer that his employer will pay him. Not for his work, but for his faith. Now, there's ways that that breaks down all all over the place in love to God and how faith will express itself. But what, what Paul is emphasizing here is that the one who doesn't work, but simply believes in God who justifies the ungodly Faith is accounted, credited as righteousness. So picture a teenager. He's entering an agreement with a, a homeowner to mow the lawn or to shovel the snow if we ever get snow around here in Rockford in these, this winter. And um, he's supposed to mow the lawn. He's supposed to shovel the snow, and he doesn't do it. Um, rather, he believes in the kindness of the homeowner. And the owner of the home comes out. Right? blows the snow or mows the lawn, whatever season it is, whatever's appropriate. And, and then he does the work and he pays the teenager with his own money as if the teenager had mowed the lawn. And that, dear friends, is the gospel. Is that we haven't worked, we haven't labored. Jesus worked and Jesus labored and we received the reward of righteous standing before the Lord simply because we believe in Him. It's the law of faith. That is what it means to be counted righteous. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I tell you, that's just difficult to understand. Um, We live in a world where everything's about getting what you deserve, except maybe the Millions of people on welfare. Maybe there's a diff. Just, dis- but but we understand clearly, right? You work and you get what is is. Do you? And, and in fact, that's so ingrained in us. It's so ingrained in humanity that that is every world religion. Um, every world religion is performance based to some degree or another. Uh, whether that is um, you get to heaven because in the end your good outweighs your bad. Well, that, that says that, see, my good merits, it's a performance that's better than my bad, and that gets me in. Or whether that's you get nirvana, or you come back as a higher level of life because you were good in this life, right? See, what I did in this life, the karma is there. I earned the karma to be able to advance to the next level. Or the rain comes because we dance to the rain god, right? We did this thing to placate our god and then the, the rain came. Or, or, or you conceive because you sacrificed on the altar of the fertility god. Which happens in India and in India, in Nepal still today. Right? But, but you see, you've done this thing at the altar of some god and this deity, whatever, is going to then pay you back, reward you performance-based, right? Or, or it even can creep into the church. You gain God's favor because you give something to the church or you do something for the church. How subtle it can slip in there. But the gospel is different. It says that, that God looks not at the things that we do, but he looks with laser focus at our faith. And if we have genuine faith, that's what he credits to our account as righteousness. Let verse five sink into your skulls to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's difficult to believe. In Jesus' day it's difficult to believe. You remember the parable that Jesus told of the laborers in the vineyard? Right? How Jesus said, in Matthew twenty, verse one, right, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, go into the vineyard too, and I'll give you whatever's right. And and so they went, and going out again, and in the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And even the eleventh hour, he found others standing. He said, why do you stand your idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. He said, go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his four men, call The laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. And now, when those hired came first, they thought that they would receive more than the denarius. And on receiving their denarius, they grumbled. They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last only worked an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And Jesus replied to them, Friend, am I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go out. If I choose to give to my last worker, I choose to give to my last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? So last to be first, the first to be last. And Jesus, I think there is teaching grace and teaching about those who are working hard. That they don't like grace because it's so against us that we we begrudge generosity when it comes upon another. We, oh, we love grace on ourselves, but we don't like it on others. And, and not understanding that means that we don't understand it for ourselves either. And I say a simple mindset like that, a similar mindset like that can keep us from the gospel Right? Because we all think that, oh, look at all the time I've put in. Right? Look at all that I'm going to get. Look at all that I deserve. And when God saves someone else because he looks on their faith and counts as righteousness, we say, God, that's not fair. It's because we haven't understood grace. We haven't understood the law of faith. And that's the point of the illustration of verses 4 and 5. So let's look at my final point this morning. We've seen Abraham in verses 1 through 3. Abraham believed God was credited to righteousness. We see the illustration from the workforce, right, to the one who believes his faith is counted as righteousness. And now we see David. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. David writes this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And again, what we do is we see Paul Going back into the Old Testament and demonstrating that the law of faith is nothing new. This whole idea of being um, counted righteous because of our faith is, is as old as Abraham, 2000 AD. Is as old as David, 1000 2000 BC? David, 1000 BC. A- Abraham, 2000 BC, Abraham, David. Yeah, you got it. Whatever. You got it. Before Jesus. This was still working. And Paul's emphasis with David is, is counting your faith as righteous brings a blessing. That's how both these verses start. In verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The blessed man is the one whose deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and God will not count his sin against him. Now, these words come from Psalm 32. And I want to finish my message in Psalm 32 that Ryan read for us today. There's does a good job of just looking forward to see what's, what's in the text. And indeed, there it is. Psalm 32 is where David comes from, page 462 in your pew Bible. It's a, it's a great psalm of confession. It's a psalm of forgiveness. It's a great psalm that shows the pains and trials and anguish of sin. And it's David's experience, really, with God's grace of forgiveness. And God's grace of forgiveness ends in a testimony of blessing. Now, we don't know for sure when David wrote this. um, But my guess is that these words in Psalm 32 probably came after the sin with Bathsheba, after his affair with, with her. They probably came after David's unwillingness to confess his sin for more than a year. And they they probably came only after David confessed his sin. Now, these verses here in Psalm 32 are not in chronological order. And I I believe that's because in verses 1 and 2 speaks about the blessing of forgiveness. The the blessing of being counted righteous by, by faith. And the blessings of forgiveness stands first. And then he tells a story And you can read it that way, and that's how we're going to end. We're going to emphasize that. But what I like to do is just read it chronologically because his story begins with sin. His story begins with the agony of unconfessed sin. Look at verse 3 and 4. David says, When I kept silent, that is, silent about my sin. My sin was there. Many saw it. But I kept silent about it. And he, being the king, was not confronted until Nathan confronted him. But when I kept silent about my sin, here it is my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I say this church family, never underestimate the effect that sin will have on your physical well-being. David knew the pains of unconfessed sin. And he said, I had bodily pain because of my unconfessed sin. He said, I had depression from my unconfessed sin. I I had no energy. I preferred to lay on the couch because of my unconfessed sin. He he describes it here at the end of verse 4. My strength was dried up that's by the heat of summer. Right? Summer. You think about summer. You think about, say, the desert. When, when just energy is just zapped from you. Right? Whether it's humidity or not. Or it's just summertime. and It's just hot. You're, you have no energy. You'd rather stay inside than to go outside and work. And that's the curse of, of many countries near the equator. Is it just, it's just so hard to work. Because it's so hot outside, it's just hard to labor. And you have lots of laziest people there. But lots of that is due to environmental just heat. And But David says here that because of my sin, it was as if I lived near the equator in this immense heat that was oppressive that I didn't want to go out. <coughs> he said my bones wasted away. He said I was groaning all day long. There was something about just skeletal was difficult I was wasting away such is the effect of unconfessed sin finally he came to his senses and confessed his sin verse 5 I acknowledge my sin to you this is a prayer to God right and I did not cover my iniquity I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin this is just confession and see how easy is confession it's just words from your mouth. It's some sentences. Even, even you can say it like this I was wrong. I sinned. Please forgive me. I mean, you could say, I was wrong. I sinned. Please forgive me in less than three seconds. How easy it is. And yet, how hard it is. Pride keeps us from confession, love of sin keeps us from confession. It's hard to admit sin's done. It's hard to admit our wickedness. And it took David a year. If you read 2 Samuel 12, you realize it, it took him a long time. He thought he'd hit it. He thought he'd hit it pretty well. Until Nathan came along and said, you are the man. And God used Nathan the prophet who stood boldly to confront him of sin to then confess his sin to the Lord. And what David did... He knew great blessing. Verses 1 and 2. This is the point of the psalm. This is the the joy of David. This is what Paul was getting at. Even David right expresses the blessedness of the one who has been counted righteous by faith. And he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is, the one who has opened up and confessed his sin to the Lord and found Psalm 103 that some of us are working on memorizing. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are as dust. As a father has compassion on his children, so he has compassion upon us. He will not hold our our sins and our iniquities against us. And as David found God to be a a gracious and forgiving God, as he opened up his sin, he he finds there's great blessing there. Great blessing, verse 32, about the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And what I'm talking about here is when he counts you righteous, and here he's just kind of doing the, the opposite thing. He's not looking at your debits and counting them, he's not counting them. He's giving you credits of righteousness. I just say this, church family, do you know the blessing of forgiveness? Have you experienced the joys of knowing your sins are wiped clean? That God will not count your iniquity against you? This, my friends, is the gospel. That that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all iniquity. See, it's it's not your your works that save you. It's your faith and trusting in the Lord that that He will count your faith as righteousness. And then David in verse 6 then turns. Turns to all of us. He says, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. He's talking to the godly. Cry out to the Lord. Confess your sins to the Lord. And then he's a testimony of God. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then he says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way to go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'm telling you the way to go. And what's the way to go? It's Confession. You find forgiveness in Christ. Just don't be like this horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You want to find a place filled with sorrow? Just with wicked people who are pursuing their own passions and pursuing their own sin. It's just natural consequences come to that. Sin never brings joy and happiness. But when you're confessing your sin, when you're trusting in the Lord, it's the steadfast love which surrounds you. And so, even David here says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And really what he's getting at here is, this is the gospel. I've confessed my sin. I have found forgiveness. And you do the same. Sounds an awful lot like the theme of the book of Romans, does it not? That Paul, knowing the gospel dwelling upon the gospel, was eager to preach the gospel. And I would argue that the greatest fuel for preaching the gospel is to relish and joy and know the blessings of the gospel in your heart. As we've said, the best way is to enjoy His grace so you might extend His glory. I just encourage you, church family, even today, just think about Abraham and think about how he was counted righteous by his faith. Think about the employer-employee illustration, how... How it's not what is due, it's what comes by grace when he credits us as righteousness. And even David here speaks of the blessing of the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. May that stir our hearts that we would be eager to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir us in these wonderful truths. Thank you for the book of Romans, which is so good for our souls. I pray, O oh God, that You would teach us of how how good and glorious and blessed God is the Gospel and in our hearts what we can experience. God, may that stir us then to be eager to preach to others. I just pray, even as we prayed in prayer meeting, God, for Your need in our lives as we rub paths with unbelievers this week who are keeping their sin to themselves and hiding their sin and their bones are wasting away and their vitality being dried up as with the fever heat of summer. Father, I pray that we would be able to extend to them the hope where hope can be found, where there is joy in the Lord, where there is great blessing, and it comes in Jesus. Not by our works, God, but by faith and trust in You. So stir us afresh, O oh God, in these things. and help us this week, when that divine appointment comes our way. God, to stir our hearts with boldness to be able to speak to others about Christ. Help us, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.